I'm Derek Wheatley and welcome to episode 181 of the Weekly Wheatley Podcast. Thank you very much for uh, tuning in uh, wherever you are doing so. Uh, a big thank you to uh, Claire Griffin who came on last week to talk about uh, being an artist and then becoming a tattoo artist and uh, the meaning of tattoos, why they're so popular, um, why she uh, got tattoos of her own. Um, we went into a little bit of a, a conversation about all that. Um, obviously, I'm speaking from a point of view where I have absolutely no tattoos, so that was. Uh, I'm always good being at this at this time. I'm always good being outside of my uh, depth, <laughs> but it was a, it was a great chat. So go check it out. Join us. Uh, you can support us. Sorry, on uh, buy me a coffee if you like. Uh, uh, link is always in the description. Uh, everything is appreciated and put back into the podcast. Usually on um, on books for guests you know uh, books that guests have written and I get to read them and at least have some sort of uh, some sort of knowledge on what um, I'm supposed to be asking people if you want to check out another podcast by the way Lucky Works Podcast um, my friend Josh's podcast that I am also on and uh, it's uh, it's on episode what's it on episode 5 uh, so they're all there in the podcast platform on the podcast platforms try and get my words right um so this uh episode is called nine events that changed everything um i had to go through a couple of uh changes on the title really because i had like nine moments then i had nine uh things and then i had changed to events and i think events is a more appropriate uh, word to use um i thought it'd be nice to do a like a little bit of a solo episode in between guests uh even though i every time i do a solo episode i think that's the last time i'm doing a solo episode so this time hopefully i won't say it after i record this episode um so when i talk about the nine events there's two things that i'm not going to talk about and the reason i'm not going to talk about them because they've been covered so many so many times on this uh, podcast so i'm not going to talk about the beatles because i've mentioned the beatles numerous times uh they are as art goes the most important you know um entity that that uh have been in my life you know in regards to obviously falling in love with music but you know when they came along it was different and then i got to as i was reading about the beatles i got to read more about the 60s then i got into music of the 60s films of the 60s and i went from there so i'm not going to talk about the beatles because i've covered them they would obviously be in this list otherwise. Another thing I'm not going to talk about is 12 Angry Men. I've talked about it um, ad nauseum, uh, but the event that, you know, watching 12 Angry Men, my, Angry Men with my dad, and it got me into films and got me to appreciate films a lot more. And I went from there with my, you know, um, becoming a little bit more sophisticated with my film choices. So uh, I'm not going to mention 12 Angry Men. So there are two things that are taken out that would have been in there. I thought it only right. I'm doing this uh, chronologically. Uh, it will be easier to follow, I suppose. Uh, otherwise, if I'm jumping around a bit, it gets a bit messy and things like that. So uh, I'm also not going to say something like par- no, our number one, uh, my birth, obviously, because these are events that I uh, was, um, you know, fully aware of happening. So put it that way. Um, there's a line in a one of my favorite Nirvana songs, if not my favorite Nirvana songs, called "Serve the Servants," and the line is, 
uh, that legendary divorce is such a bore. All right. Now, my parents didn't get divorced. They separated, but they, you know, they didn't get technically get divorced. But the line, as far as Kurt Cobain is talking about, was the, you know, how critics would talk about once he became famous, people started dipping into his private life and realizing that his parents were divorced when he was quite young. And then trying to go back and analyze lyrics and figure out where he had spoken about the divorce or even in interviews when he was asked questions about it, how it had affected his life. And to him, it became obviously a bore, as he said. So every time I went to therapy, uh, I was asked about this or when it was discovered in therapy, when I talked about it, like this kind of something that a therapist would cling on to, like, why is this, um, you know, is this the thing that kind of affected him immediately from the beginning and maybe set off something else? And, you know, I mentioned this to my mom the other day about putting this down in the list because, um, you know, it does have an effect, but it doesn't quite have the effect, I think, that some people might think it has. So I, when I look back on that time when I was, you know, between six and eight, I, mean, I know I moved to Dublin when I was eight, but like the, the separation had kind of begun before that. And I think I was too young, really, for it to affect me then um, because I didn't really know what was going on, you know. Um, now, when I was when we moved to Dublin, then we had this kind of a situation where we move where we move or sorry, travel down every three weeks and then for for, you know, holidays and stuff like that. And I always had the. Kind of feeling when I got to about 10 or 11, when I started to realize the, the, that, you know, it wasn't as prevalent then, like, you know, separations and stuff like that. Um, for whatever reason, uh, the Catholic Church, I know, but it's, it's, it was, it was weird to leave a parent behind each time, you know, and I was projecting my feelings on my parents. So I was thinking like, Oh God, how devastated they must be to, to not see us now for three days or for the holidays and stuff like that. And like, you know, I see my, when we were leaving with my mom, my dad would be like, wave us off or whatever. And I was like, oh God, he's going to be devastated now for, <laughs> you know, uh, and that was just projecting my own thing on top of it. Um, obviously as I got older, like it became less and less, uh, but there was moments where Christmas is together and stuff like that, where it was a bit strained. And I, and then I, you start to notice the, uh, how difficult it is for, for parents to, you know, have to spend time together. Like if you think of it just as, as, someone maybe who broke up with people before not been married. I mean, just, you know, went out with someone for a year and broke up and then having to share that, you know, making sure that the rest of your life is being shared with someone that you didn't want to be with in the first place because you've got kids with them. And I'm sure loads of people listening to this have this situation. Uh, and how difficult it is to try and make it all look all happy and rosy when really you don't want to be there. Um, around the person that you separated from uh so uh, that started to kind of uh, it became noticeable and then you know family family dynamics shift all the time then it becomes like less to do with the parents and you know you kind of get in a routine but what i do find a little bit and i guess a little bit annoying about it is the fact that you know i i don't really feel comfortable mentioning my dad in front of my mom and then vice versa you know and I, I, it's just that that's kind of something that 
you know, is disappointed to me that I can't, you know, share these moments of like the two most important people in your life, you know, your parents. Uh, you can't share kind of certain moments because you feel, oh, I don't want to mention that this was with my dad or this was with my mom. And that's the only thing that kind of still maybe fee- makes me feel a bit strange, I suppose. But, you know, I mean, if I think of it, so I've moved to Dublin when I was eight and I'm 41 now, like it's like 30, 33 years ago. Has it affected me a huge amount? It's affected me a small bit, but it's not as, as, as you know, life changing, I think, as some might imagine. And maybe it's because of my age at the time when it happened. If I was 15 or 16 and realizing everything that was going on around me, it might be something different than for me. So I, I felt like I needed to put it in here. Um, because it is a, a a point in someone's life where, you know, two of their most important people separate and then it becomes two different stories in your life. But at the same time, you know, I'm glad they did because when you think of all the people who's had to stay together, you know, maybe 20 years before that, maybe in the 50s and 60s or whatever it was, they had to stay together because of the Catholic Church, um, but <laughs> but they had, you know, because they were expected to stay together and just get through things, but then be miserable with it. So I, I'm glad that they didn't um, decide to go down that route because who wants their parent, parents to be miserable? Um, and as that great quote in uh, Talladega Night goes, when the two kids find out that the parents are separating, they shout out two Christmases. So there you go. Um, the second one for me, I told someone about this the other day and they were shocked by by this being such an important event in my life, but this really was groundbreaking. When you cling, when you love music, um, even when I was I was like hanging around my brother, uh, my older brother, and they him and his friends were already kind of into music, and they and I remember it being Guns N' Roses, Metallica, and just being uh, I had the tapes, you know, Guns N' Roses, Metallica tapes, and I used to listen to them all the time, and. I was thinking like that was my music, but I was so young, you know, and I think of it now, like, I'd, I, you know, I hope it still happens to kids that young when they realize how important music can be and, you know, how it can maybe bring them out of, of their shell and things like that. Um, and, you know, kind of catch, you know, you catch on to other art forms through it. But so they, I was listening to all this and then I remember it so distinctly, my brother coming in with a, with a tape cassette and it was a, a record, you know, it wasn't a an original, we'll say. So it was recorded onto this blank tape. And he gave me this tape and he said, I, you know, I don't really like this all that much. But, you know, you should maybe you listen. I don't remember the story, but I remember exactly where we were, sta- where we were standing in the in our first like house in Dublin. And he put it on the mantelpiece and it was Nirvana's Nevermind album. Um. I remember like listening to it and I was 10 years of age. It was like early 1992 because it came out in late 1991. And I know it wouldn't have been that quick that I got the the recorded cassette. So it was late or early 1992. And I I remember listening to it. So I would have been nine coming on 10 at the time. And I just thought like, it just blew me away. And I think when I heard that Nirvana album, all of a sudden Metallica and Guns N' Roses sounded different it didn't they didn't resonate as much it almost sounded dated if that makes any sense and like I was 10 years old I wasn't thinking in those terms but 
you know, I wasn't thinking, oh, they're very dated now. I'm, I was hardly that sophisticated as a young child. Um, uh, uh, listening to music, I'm still not sophisticated listening to music. But I remember the voice, the Kirkman's voice was so distinct. I remember I've since, you know, heard Nirvana described as the Beatles with distortion. And Kirk Cobain, as a child, was really into the Beatles, so it makes sense. But he's he had a real gift for for melody and and uh, obviously for songwriting. But so I, I no, this is pre-internet kids, all right. So we were drip-fed uh, news. MTV News was was really where you get any kind of updates about your favorite bands and things like that. But Nirvana at the time then were were blowing up because Smells of Teen Spirit. So I, I might have heard Smells of Teen Spirit before I got this tape set, but. I remember listening to like In Bloom and, uh, you know, I was too young to realize what the songs were about. So as I was kind of getting older and, you know, they had a incesticide came out that was about, that was kind of B-sides and rarities kind of collection. But then In Utero came out and I was just like, this is a, like better than Nevermind Blue, Nevermind Out the Water for me. Like I really like Nevermind, by the way, I'm just think in utero is, is a far superior album far like dirtier and stuff and you know I'd, I'd i'd gone back and listened to bleach and you know people talk about nirvana as grunge like and grunge is obviously like any other genre is is a, is a made-up word and then people are stuck together i don't believe there is a grunge sound now what they may have been trying to 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 throw these bands together from seattle washington like bleach would be if the if you hear someone's definition of grunge, Bleach is their only album that kind of falls under that definition, I think, because Nevermind is much more cleaner and, and poppy. And but then Utero goes off in a completely different direction, all kind of crazy. But I started listening to, you know, when I saw I got a tape, um, a VHS tape now, and it was called Life Tonight Sold Out, and and I remember watching it, and it was it was a concert video it was a concert video of, of nirvana and then little interviews in between and little montages and things like that and i genuinely did think that carpet Cobain was the coolest person on the planet just that like because you always see these bands and it's, if you talk about metal bands like guns and roses and metallica they were you know all black long hair um you know kind of i wouldn't say image orientated but there was a certain even though they might want you to know this there was a certain image that they liked to portray whereas Kirkabane was like I suppose it's an, an image in, its, in itself but you know cut jeans, real baggy jumpers blonde hair all over his face just screaming like a, a guy for you know his size and stature being able to get that noise out of him is, is incredible I just thought the way he played guitar like every time he played a solo they were kind of anti-solos because they weren't, they didn't stick to scales or anything. And sometimes he hit the wrong note and just stay on it. Or sometimes his guitar was out of tune and he'd just leave it out of tune. And it was this imperfections that kind of maybe drew me to, to it. And, you know, he had this amazing, I found out this afterwards and I could kind of go back and listen to, to lyrics and stuff. If you listen to the lyrics of In Bloom, he talks about he's the one who likes all his pretty songs and he likes to shoot his gun and he likes to sing along, but he don't know what it means. And it's about those frat boys in the audience who bash into people and that he used to hate that kind of macho image like you know metallic and guns and roses and i guess that's why he went into a bit of an argument with axel rose before but he stood on you know these topics of 
you know, gay rights and, and he was a feminist and I suppose everything that I would like to think I am. Uh, so maybe, you know, getting drawn to someone like that was, was a, was a positive thing for me and, and to realize that these, these images, these people that you hold in your head as, as your heroes, maybe that's a bit too strong of a word, but, but definitely like you, you look up to them, uh, in their work. And I wanted to play the guitar when I heard Kirk Cobain. And I mean, that's a pretty strong thing for someone to give you that you wanted to change and, and, and learn, uh, an instrument because of them. And look, I can never play guitar like Kirk Cobain. Uh, well, I only play acoustic guitars these days, so I definitely couldn't know. Although, if you want to listen to a, a stripped back version of, of Nirvana, Unplugged in New York is one of the greatest live albums of all time. And you really get to hear his, his voice as, as something that is, can be as melodic as anyone and, and then be as powerful, um, going into something like, um, where did you sleep last night? As a, a cover of a Lead Belly song they did, which is incredible. When he took when he took his own life, sadly, uh, I found out about it. You know, my brother told me, and not in the nicest way did he tell me, but he told me. Um, and I thought I didn't. It took me about six weeks to realize. Oh, that's that. Does that mean there's no more Nirvana music? And that was selfishly like a, a a thing for me rather than thinking about the man himself but you know you, we always are a bit selfish when we think that something that we love is taken away from us you know that music that they gave but the good thing about you know everything's there I have it in CDs mp3s whatever it is I go back and just listen to the power of those songs and kind of it brings me back to the time when I was uh, a bit you know clueless when it comes to music and I did hear Nirvana before the Beatles so um, they were, they are still the second most important band, um, of my lifetime. Uh, so that, that, so yeah. So parent separations, check, separation, Nirvana, check, party, drink of drugs. I think everybody would have this as part of your, of part of like events in your life that, you know, your first time you do it, you change. I remember the first time I, I drank, I, I drank a nagging of, of something called 2020, which I don't know if it's still sold now, but, it was kind of, I suppose, like a vodka thing with, with a flavoring. And I remember I was given the, I was thinking of the pineapple. I don't even like pineapple, but I was given that. I remember drinking. I never, like I was 13, I think, or 14. I think I was 13, but I remember drinking it and kind of thinking, oh, should, should something else happen? But I do remember lying on the grass, which was a football field. It was in the summer and it was dark and so it's obviously late. And I remember just like the stars were moving <laughs> and I was kind of going, do these always move? Um, I don't know. But, you know, I don't know if I left a, a lasting impact that initial time I did it, but definitely when you start to drink more, that sense of escapism um, becomes more and more appealing, I suppose. And uh, I I clung to that a little bit too much. And then it, it, it helps with communication as well. Like if you're in a large crowd or um, even when you're when you're old enough to start going to pubs or nightclubs, and I was going when I was sixteen, I was using my brother's ID, and and like communication became easier. I don't think I was going around chatting to people and flirting with with the with lady with the ladies and and thing, doing things like that. But I think I was able to kind of loosen up a little bit, and you know, we don't realize when I'm that age that there's anxiety issues and stuff like that. But I do I do know that, yeah, I think alcohol helped you know oil the. Uh, the hinges um and then you know the first time smoking uh hash it wouldn't have been weed we didn't have that much money 
uh, her group of friends. But we were down the the we used to call it the Jacko, but it was that it was like a valley in, in swords. Um and we were on a lunch break and we went back after it and it was I think it was a transition year, maybe it was a year before. And I was like, God, this feels very odd. I hope nobody asks me any questions now and allows me to sit and stew in this nice feeling. It was a nice feeling. Um, and then we started to kind of, I used to go to my friends and we started to smoke bongs out in the, in rush on the beach. And, uh, you know, I never, I remember being at a party at my friend's house and it was a house, a house they had by the beach. And I was sitting there and there was a girl in the, in the, in the toilets and she was kind of pulling a whitey. So she basically smoked too much. And I was in the I was in the other room in one of the bedrooms, and there was like loads of people in the house. Like, <laughs> where it came from? And I remember looking at my t- my tracksuit bottoms, and like they were, were kind of those shell kind of things, you know, those kind of um, that fabric was kind of slidey. And I remember looking at this hole in my in the in the tracksuit bottoms on my tie, and I was kind of going, "That's strange. I've never seen that before." And then I didn't realize, but it was a hot rock off the hash that was burning through the tracks about them onto my skin. Uh, so then I copped on and um, yeah, I managed to put out the the fire on my leg. But, you know, you go on to things like um, other drugs, <laughs> but but like uh, weed, for instance, something that's a completely different kind of high. Um, but it's just pure escapism. And, you know, uh, that's the worst thing about it, though, because you do keep reaching for that because you realize like, oh, I'd either... I don't think it was I don't like myself, but I says I don't like how I feel a lot of the time. I had no word for it at the time. So I didn't like feeling this kind of sense of nervousness and discomfort around people. And, um, you know, to go to the pub, like drink three or four bottles of beer before you go. So then you're kind of already in that kind of jolly mood where you're not feeling that anxiety. And maybe and the last time I ever smoked, actually, funny enough, I was in um, I was in Harvey's when it was in Athlone. Excuse me, I'll just have a drink. And I was, we were having a few drinks at the bar. There was a few of us. There was like six or seven of us. And my friend, my friend says, I have this if you want to go out and smoke it. And I hadn't smoked in a while be- since before that, you know, so I wasn't like, I wasn't, hadn't given it up. But at the same time, I kind of moved away from it a little bit. So I said, yeah, I'll go and smoke it. It was just like a one Skinner thing. It wasn't like a, a proper joint. It was just, you know, and I was wasted. I don't know what was in it. And I remember sitting at the bar and just feeling so paranoid. Uh, it was the, that was the last time I smoked because I felt terrible. And I don't I don't even know if I really ever liked smoking weed or anything like that. But I do know that I just liked how that escapism was available there at all times. And then we know the story of, and this will kind of, you know, we'll, we'll get into the, the, what happens later on. But like I did, start to rely on drink and and then yeah uh, I had to face those facts too but that was a little bit further down the line the next event Radiohead gig Punchstown Racecourse the year 2000 we get on a we get on a bus there and uh, or sorry Dublin bus we're putting on a you know a fl- basically a fleet of buses to get people in and out of Punchestown. So our driver decides to, to, to drive to Ferry House and, and turns up at Ferry House and there's nobody there, strangely enough, uh, b- because the concert wasn't there. So he had to turn around. Now, it kind of made a cool moment, though. We were all frustrated. I remember being on the bus and someone made a comment. He's lucky this isn't a 
bus full of Metallica fans had wrecked the place, which is probably a bit unfair on Metallica fans. An unfair stereotype. But so he, he got to, we got to punch us down and Radiohead were playing in this big tent. And at the time they weren't, they were, it was called kind of called the no logo, no logo tour after the Naomi Klein book, no logo about, you know, advertising and stuff like that. And Tom York had got into the idea of not, you know, advertising things. So he had it in this tent anyway. Now, strangely enough, outside the tent, there was a row of the Heineken posters because, you know, somebody's got to pay, you know, it's, just always has to be somebody's getting paid. But, um, so we're walking to the kind of not turnstiles, but you know, where the people are, are ready to like check in and nobody's around at this stage because it's getting, you know, the time is ticking on. And all of a sudden, if people don't radiohead, uh, the national anthem's baseline. Now that's, this is a radiohead song called the national anthem. This isn't a Ron Athean's baseline kicking in, but, um, <laughs> all of a sudden this baseline kicks in and we're thinking like, we can't wait. Like, so we're all trying to give you one the ticket and we're trying to get through and blah, blah, blah. And we, we run up anyway. So we get in there. We're kind of halfway through, uh, the national anthem. And I can honestly say that this was like the greatest, uh, easily the greatest concert I've ever been to, ever been to. I'm very lucky to have been to some amazing concerts. This was unbelievable from start to finish. Me and my friend Bones, we stood at the back. The other lads who were with us kind of went up right up to the front. Radiohead at the time had changed into a slightly different band, like they were guitar orientated before it, but then all of, you know, out of nowhere, they became this electronic band. And it was like, the, I, I recently saw it described as the greatest, the greatest left turn in music history. Um, and then, you know, putting it up there with Bob Dylan going electric uh, moments, mo- like iconic moments like that. And this concert was just like everything. It was almost like there was, I'd never seen them live. I was a huge fan of OK Computer, their album, and, and, and Kid A was their album that they were touring at the time. And I was still kind of getting to grips with the idea of this band that I knew as a rock band. We're now uh, a rock slash electronica band. But it was like there were aliens on stage. It was I didn't know what was going on. Like the drummer was playing the drums, okay, but then there was drum beats along with it, you know, electronic beats, which sounded strange to me because I hadn't seen any of that before in in concerts. I hadn't been to that many concerts at the time. Um, and the bass player was playing the bass, and and the, you know, the odd time he's playing a little keyboard as well. But then Johnny Greenwood, who's the guitarist, was playing the owned the. It's an instrument called the owned Martineau. I won't describe it now, but you can look it up. O-N-D-E-S, uh, Martineau, that's as it sounds. Um, he was playing a radio at one point. He had this massive um, board of switches and knobs and stuff he was turning and making these crazy sounds. He was doing everything. Sometimes the other guitarist, Ed O'Brien, was on his, like, sitting cross-legged on the floor, like in a yoga position, just messing around with a pedal board. Tom York, at one point, he was singing a song called Climbing Up the Walls, and he was singing into the guitar, you know, like into the, the, the hollow, uh, the hole in the, in the guitar, in an acoustic guitar. Uh, he was doing this mad dancing that I'd never seen him do because he was normally, you know, kind of stock still on stage. Just aliens, just aliens on stage. And I thought to myself, like, I desperately want to be in a band. Like, how cool does that look? Like, I've seen, look, I've said already on this podcast, the Beatles, Nirvana, Radiohead come come third uh, as the most important band. That concert made sure of that. I've seen them twice since then. They've been amazing. But that concert, the the, the people at it, you know, 
the communal event that every concert is, but everybody was like in on this, you know, like a tribal thing, which I hadn't felt before and probably really haven't felt at other concerts since, you know, but I didn't know what they were doing on stage, but I just, I wanted to do it. And, uh, you know, I did sort of, I look, I have been in bands since then and I've played on stage in pubs, but still it was exciting. Uh, we didn't play electronic music, but it really, unfortunately, I can't go to gigs that much because of how they make me feel beforehand. The build up is the worst part. But if I could get one more gig like that, you know, that was so special. I was 18. I, yeah, I would have turned 18. Um, it was just everything like, and, and I did, like I said, I did start bands. I did play Radiohead songs in bands. I was never, we never had the equipment to play their post kid A stuff, but just it was, yeah. I mean, it was, it was all worth it. Like whatever stresses had come before it leading up to it, uh, everything was worth that kind of that gig. And, uh, you know, being there with my friends in particular bones, cause I spent the whole concert, whole concert with him. Um, I remember standing and we were on these big stones, like these really big stones, not pebbles, proper stones. I don't think you'd get to do that now. <laughs> Maybe you would, I don't know, because of the, you know, the safety kind of stuff. But like, you know, they didn't come into play or anything. Obviously, nobody's going to throw stones at the stage, but it just, it was just something I noticed at the time. But it was just, yeah, it was incredible. So that was one that was a, a kind of an earthquake sized moment. Um. So, like I say, I was playing in bands and I remember we we were in a band and this is about this moment or event is about me stop stopping singing in front of people for a long time. Um, one day we were due to play. We, we My friend uh, owned a bar in town. His, his dad owned the bar, River S. People will know it of my vintage. And we were we were we were allowed to rehearse there on a Tuesday night. So because it wasn't busy, but there'd be a few people there and, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd mess up songs and stuff like that. But I think they got it pretty quickly what we were doing, that it wasn't a full on gig. So we were, we were figuring stuff out. So you're, it was really weird. It's like, you know, if you've ever been a band in a practice room, think of that in a, a quite a big pub in Athlone overlooking the Shannon and there's people just coming in and out. It's, it was kind of weird. There was one, there was one moment where I was playing uh, this wasn't the same night, but we were further down at the back of the pub and, and every, me and my brother was in the band and there was a couple of other boys, uh, a couple of other lads in the band on bass and drums. And I play a bit of guitar. I, I was the singer and I played the keyboards, but we were playing Smile Like You Mean It by the Killers. And, you know, there's a certain keyboard part and the chef just, just walked straight through. He, I don't think he even, even realized when he did it straight through my wire for the, and plugged the keyboard out and just it went, dude. Um, but yeah, so anyway, we were playing that night. Um, I had gone to play football a few hours beforehand out in the, the AstroTurf pitches, you know, five aside, and it was so foggy that day. And I remember I left the, the, the match, uh, went home. I was living on my own time, went home, had a shower. I, I even remember eating some turkey meatloaf that my dad had given me the a couple of days before from the Sunday. And I warmed it up and I I ate that. And I was having this cough, like, and I didn't realize stupidly that when you do play in something like fog, you breathe that in and, you know, it, it affected my my lungs, you know, and uh, my my 
throat and my larynx or whatever you call them, whatever the technical word is <clears throat> like that. Excuse me. Um, so I turned up with a cough and I re I was really struggling to sing some of the songs to kind of hit the high notes. Now I listen, I picked most of the songs cause I had to pick them around my voice. I stayed away from high notes. I wasn't going to go sing high and dry or something by Radiohead or something, you know, anything like that. So I, I was really struggling to sing. Um, so I was kind of singing bits and pieces and letting the lads then play like little kind of musical parts, you know, solos and just kind of jamming along with each other. Cause look, we were practicing for kind of bigger gigs along the, uh, uh, down the line, proper gigs in, in proper evenings, like a Friday or Saturday. And I was coughing and I was sitting there and I was really starting to get pissed off with myself more than anything, you know, this drunk person, just drunk lady. Um, I'll just have a drink for her. That's for you, drunk lady. But. So she comes up and she's like, starts giving me advice on how to sing. Uh, and I was kind of thinking, you know, at the first, the first time she said it, I wasn't being a, a dick or anything. I was just saying, okay, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So I sat down and the lads were playing. I tried to sing again. I just couldn't get anywhere near where I wanted to get with some of the songs. You know, I couldn't hit certain notes. And the more you think about it, then the less chance you are of hitting it, you know, because you start to doubt yourself and you know, you're not, you're not getting near. I was getting so pissed off. And she kept coming up then. And like, I found out afterwards that she was a, I think she was like a, a choir singer or a head of a choir or whatever it was. So she knew, she kind of knew what she was talking about with regards to voice, but she was really doing my confidence a lot of damage. And I started to kind of resent her, which is, which is unfair, you know. She's drunk. Look, she probably shouldn't have been getting involved, but she was probably trying to help. In uh, in the way only a drunk person can, and uh, I I I started to resent her. I started to resent being in the band. I started to resent, like literally like this is people might be thinking oh catastrophizing again, you know. But yeah, that's exactly what I was doing because I thought well, I don't want to be in a band. I can't sing. This is crap. If these are the songs I picked and I can't still can't sing them, what am I going to be able to sing ever? Um. And this grew in my head, grew in my head. And I remember when we finally finished up. Now, at this point, I had, I was, I think I was still smoking at the time. Yeah, I would have been. And, you know, which is always a great idea when you can't hit the notes. Go out and have a fag. But I went out for a cigarette. My brother came out and I said, that's it. I'm not singing my heart around. I'm, I'm not singing anymore. I don't want to sing in this band. This is crap. And he was like, I'll just relax, relax. You know the way. I don't think we played as a band after that. Um, I certainly didn't sing in public after that for a very long time until I started doing the stuff I do on Instagram and Facebook every so often. And I hope that explains why when people say to you, and not many people say this, but a couple of people have said, why do you do those things on Instagram? You know, that's my comfort zone. Uh, that's, I should say, that's me being outside of my comfort zone. And we all kind of need to be outside our comfort zone. And it's not like I push it every, it's not like I push to be outside of my comfort zone every day. You know, I come here and I go, I'm in my house. I go to the gym. I go into town, which is not, you know, which is a little bit outside of my comfort zone. But the, but singing on, on front of people on Instagram and going in and people who, who follow the, have followed the podcast for a long time. Someone like Joanne, for instance, like I'm not going to use my parents, obviously, as well, but uh, Joanne will will see that. She, I know she sees the she listens to the podcast and hey Joanne, uh, but if she was to follow everything I did, she would see these posts that I make about the falsetto and how 
that night kind of ruined any chance of me doing falsetto anymore. But I have been doing falsetto on on some of the songs, and that that is definitely outside of my comfort zone. Like I don't listen back to it because I'm like, oh god. But you know, that was a big moment because if you think of like a woman just saying, giving you some probably decent advice, and all of a sudden you don't want to be in a band anymore, you don't want to sing anymore. That's quite an event for for a musician who 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 really wants to look. Of course, I wanted to be like a famous musician who was very good. But then, you know, things get smaller and smaller in your head, the ambitions, the ideals and all those kind of things. So at that point, I just wanted to play in a band in some pubs. And even that had been taken away. So, yeah, that's another thing. So stopping singing. The next one then, uh, which would have rolled around maybe two or three years after that was the breakdown. Look, I'm not going to go. This had to be added, obviously. I'm not going to go through it with a fine tooth comb. People who listen to the podcast regularly will know I gave up alcohol and cigarettes. Six days later, I had a breakdown and I've been recovering um, ever since. With diagnoses that have changed <clears throat> with them, um, excuse me, with, uh, you know, continued anxiety, continued stresses, trying to push through, uh, find ways to, to heal, try to, I was talking to a friend the other day who was having trouble kind of finding things to do with it, with their life and, you know, finding hobbies and, and people who share the same interests. How do we meet people when we're in, you know, when we're in our late 30s, early 40s? And there is all these questions of, because it does get harder. It's not like when you're 20 or something. It's, you know, where you meet people out in the pubs and all that. Excuse me for a second. If you don't mind, I need to blow my nose. And I, you know I have to mute when I blow my nose because nobody wants to hear that because it's annoying me. Sorry. Apologies for that. But, you know, it's about this thing of like finding the the happy medium of, of what we like to do and, and pushing out of our comfort zone. And, you know, this person, and we've talked, like this This is my friend, uh, we've talked about this and I've said to them, they might see me as boring and stuff. But I I can say, oh yeah, I can understand why you might think I'm boring. But... I find this joy in films and I find this joy in, in books and this peace and constant um search for 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 calm and, and, and search for knowledge as well, which you do which you obviously you're in books, you're gonna be that's what you're gonna be trying to find it with knowledge and things like that. And their I guess their idea is being out and travelling to other places, but that's not comforting to me and that's no way going to make me feel any way happy I, I can't constantly be pushing the boundaries I need to look after my you know myself too if I'm if I'm at a huge amount of anxiety every couple of days because I'm traveling here and doing this and doing that and putting myself out there I don't I fear for myself if I'm, I'm in those situations because I know how stresses and strains can what they can do to me uh, and I don't want that so I do find that being in that in those moments, finding the things that you like to do, that's more important than running around trying to say, "Oh, well, but what about this? Maybe I like surfing. Maybe I like this. I can't do that." So, this this breakdown has pushed me on to like kind of greater things, but also pushed me on to realize that, you know, a lot of my happiness is in the slowness of life. And you know, sit down and read a book for an hour and just try to unwind. It doesn't have to be all go because when I'm going, it's 
it's so intense. I worry about everything, you know, every detail. And that's not good. I can't do that every day, every second day. So so the breakdown obviously is such a huge thing, but what has come from it, the kind of continued pursuit of wellness, um, obviously a, a, a pretty major event, possibly sing, like single-handedly the biggest event that's ever happened in my life. Um, but, and how much knowledge I've gained from, it, I suppose, about myself and about other things and about what's good for me. Um, so yeah, I, I apologize. Apologies if I can't fall in line and and go to all these places with people and constantly on the move. I was at a wedding the other day and it was really nice ceremony and stuff like that. But you know, it started at two. It got to nine o'clock. That I was I was wrecked. I really was just absolutely exhausted and I needed to to go. So you know, I stayed till after the speeches and then I headed off. And it was very, it was lovely to be to be invited. It's nice to be invited to anything, but. You know, you hit your point where, you know, you've had enough of my body and it's time to go home. But, you know, that's just knowing that's, that's you find that out along the way. I mean, it's like, what is it, 14 years since it happened, the breakdown. So you learn a lot. Um, so, like I said, leading up to to that was was the, the another huge event in my life was was quitting alcohol. Like, uh, like I say, the, when I when I gave it up, and and six days later, I I um I had the breakdown. I wonder, like, would I have given it up without the breakdown? Because I was constantly thinking about alcohol all the time. You know, I was constantly thinking, will I drink tonight? No, don't drink tonight. Will I drink? Your head telling you, sure, why not? You might as well drink. Sure, there's nothing else to do. Blah blah blah. The internal monologue, you know, the 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 fight, the fight that you're that you're going through with yourself about, you know. I had this like hollowness if I didn't drink that there was this hollowness in my chest, you know? And I, and I know, I know, I know now that I'll, that, sorry, that anxiety was part of that, that, you know, and I know that what filled that hollowness was the alcohol because it takes away the anxiety. So it's like this vicious circle of being anxious about always wanting to drink, but then knowing that if I do drink, I will feel a little bit more complete and I won't be, I feel, feel as, feel as bad, I suppose, and feel, you know, not sleep and lie there thinking about all these things. Um, and I've thought about like alcohol since, and we were sitting there the other day and like everybody around us drink and have a great time, you know? Um, and I wouldn't, like, I was thinking like, do I miss it? And I don't like, how could you can't miss like hangovers or, uh, heartburn or a dodgy stomach like that. I constantly had to be eating, eating Rennies to to kind of help. You, like it's not something you can miss. You, you can miss the feeling it gives you for those first three pints where you have that little bit of a warm, a warmness in you in your belly, and a little bit of a buzz on, um, and your the way you can approach people and not feel full of like self doubt or question how people might think of you if you approach them. Like I think of that now as like someone who's sober um, and go, 
I'm not going to approach that person in a pub or at a wedding or whatever it is because I'll come across looking stupid and that, and that person's going to be thinking, oh, what's, what's this person want? Like, you know, they're after something, you know, they have, they must have an agenda. So I, I think that that feeling is nice that you don't have to think about all that. But then I think, what is the point in it? Like, like I don't know. Like, maybe that is the point, you know, the, the, Dutch courage and the removal of of anxiety and things, but like, what is really the point? Because I thought, like, I was talking to someone yesterday, and we I was training with him uh, in jiu jitsu, and he had so it was Monday yesterday, so he had drank a lot. He told me on Friday, and he was still dying, and he was really struggling yesterday. He still murdered me, by the way, on the mats, just for just so people know, he still beat me up, but. He was ruined afterwards, he said. He was glad he came in, but he it killed him. Even though he was the one murdering me, by the way. It killed him. <clears throat> but I just, you know, I got murdered for five minutes and jumped up and was like, okay, on to the next one. I know that the fact that I don't drink helps my body, helps my mind. So do I miss it? Not, not really, like, anymore. Um even seeing other people drink, there's always that moment of envy. There's never a moment of like, and maybe I'll just have a few today. I know that that's a, would be a very, very bad thing for me to do for, for many reasons I don't need to go into, but I don't miss it. I don't see the point in it anymore. Um, I even see less of a point in weed or hash or anything like that, even though I know at times that soothed me and relaxed me. I also know at times it made me rather paranoid and um what would be it's not even anxiety that I felt sometimes it just felt I felt like this as if I was gonna like have a heart attack or something you know proper full-on fear um without ever pulling a whitey I suppose um so no I don't miss it but the, yeah quitting alcohol massive next thing training and again I won't need to go into the the details of this one but it had to be put in you know when I started running when I was like 30 years of age, I didn't realize that oh, this actually gives gives you a high that weed can give you only healthy. <laughs> uh, this is a high that could, like drink can give you only healthy. Uh, this is a moment where you take to yourself and you run out and you go whatever it is, 12 kilometers. OK, so that's what I'm running now. When you get back from that, like the power that this can give you like this, this it's an achievement, obviously, every time you do it. Um, but this runner's high, uh, being able to eat a bit more of the good things in life and not have to worry so much about, you know, what you're eating. You can treat yourself a bit more because all the calories you expend. Then, you know, join Infusion Training Center and, and just meeting Martin and, and obviously eventually meeting Keen and meeting Josh and, and the people I've met in there in, in, in Jiu Jitsu and CrossFit. This, like group of, you know, people who go in and beat the shit out of each other for half an hour and then get up and shake hands and chat about whatever nonsense they did at the weekend. You know, how do you get that? You don't get it anywhere. And I know people have talked about it. It's a real primal thing. And, you know, this, you know, this men and all that. And it's not true because there's women in there as well. But it's it's more than just the idea of men like wrestle you know that kind of stuff it's not about that like of course some people go in for those reasons and there's ego in there and like 
they say leave your ego at the door, but you still want to win. You still want to, or whatever winning means in training, you know, but you still want to compete at a decent level against people. But if they get you and they catch you in a choke or something, they catch you in a choke, end the story, you tap, move on to the next thing. But how joyous is that? Like, you know, just move on to the next thing. It's fine. It's not the end of the world. Um, You'll catch them the next time and then they'll tap and then you'll move on to the next thing. They start doing CrossFit and great like community over that side of the mats as well. Um, you know, becoming a coach or as I, as Martin loves me saying a facilitator, but you know, regardless of what, what I feel that I am, um, I, I think I'm getting better at it. And I think I'm getting more comfortable in my skin being in front of groups of people and even just shouting out, you know, instructions, like even that raising your voice to a level where you're higher than anybody else around. So then you're in the spotlight. That to me has always been, uh, regardless of anxiety or whatever like that, that's always been something I haven't wanted to do unless I was in a band singing or whatever. But standing in front of people talking, I think is way worse than standing in front of singing. And then, you know, finding this rhythm in, in, in my life where most of it does re- re- revolve around the gym because, you know, I obviously work there, but I train there more than I work there. You know, I, I work there only a few hours a week, but I train there more hours a week than I work. But finding that rhythm of being there and, and you know, trying to enjoy everything, like trying to enjoy that, you know, mixture of, of, of training and, and working, but all those different people who I've met and know things about now and, share I share my opinions about and who listens to this podcast you know it's it's an amazing to find a community like that and like this podcast really couldn't have kicked on the way it did without them because they were the ones who shared them on their social media platforms and they're the ones that it got the reach in the town and then that went on to, to different things um you know when I see the numbers of you know listens and stuff it's, it's our watches on YouTube it's it's mad. So I needed to join in as my ninth event, the podcast. <coughs> last time, last time I did a solo, actually, let me just check. Because this is, when I go back on these people's names, I'm like, look at all these people who just like took their time out to just do something. Oh, yeah. Or to give them the time to come on the podcast. So I did aspirations and stuff. And I, and I, and I bet myself up for, Sorry, beat myself up. That's terrible English. And I'm apologies to my father who would correct me instantly on that. Um I, I I often think of like, what have I done? And when I was talking about that, I named some things that I had done. And I was corrected within hours of the podcast publishing by Cormac, uh, who has been uh, who was a brilliant guest before, and Joanne, who was mentioned before, also a, a brilliant guest on a couple of times that I didn't mention the podcast as an achievement. And that was an oversight on my part because it's hard to remember things like that when you're in the middle of it, you know, there was no distance between it. So I was literally recording or even when I was writing it, there was no distance because this was for the podcast. So the ninth event I wanted to put in was the podcast because can you imagine, like I should say, can you imagine? Hold on one sec. It's thirsty work. Um, I think of like 14 years ago, and I didn't want to talk to anyone. And now I talk to strangers once a week. Um, in this, sometimes in this like stew of confidence or self and self doubt and anxiety and 
previous uh, triumphs, it's all in the pot. And I have to like contact someone and say, listen, can you come on and talk on my podcast and talk to me about mental health or whatever you do? And we'll, we'll, we'll talk around mental health or whatever. Like that is difficult for me. But then I need to set up the, the Zoom call. And then I would set up the Zoom call. The person comes up, right? The person pops up on the screen. This is for people who haven't been on the podcast. And I need to be confident and self-assured and feel that you are not wasting your time here. I want this podcast to be about you. Your name is in the the headline. Um, I want you to talk. I want this conversation to flow really well. And I want you to come away from taking something away from this, like like I take away from every conversation. And that is all in my head. So what is in their head, you know? But what I do find when I do come away from these conversations, like we're looking at the pursuit is of a good conversation and, and I'm going to learn and other people are going to learn. But when I come away from these conversations and like, it's amazing when I think of all the conversations I've had, how like apart from a couple of a couple of moments where there was wobbles or moments of kind of silence that I didn't know how to fill. So I kind of said something, whatever came to my mind. It's happened so few times, considering the number of episodes I've done and how many guests I've had on. And I should really count again how many guests, because we've had obviously over a hundred, but I don't know how much, how many it is now. Considering that, how many we've had, like how lucky I've been to have these, these exceptional people with this knowledge um, that I could never have found out about otherwise. And people say, well, there's Wikipedia. Yeah, but there is Wikipedia, but these, I'm talking to people on their own experiences. It's not like Wikipedia. I could Wikipedia, you know, when I had, uh, like, uh, just looking back, all right, Joanna Brooke, I talked to Joanna Brooke about, she's a professor of archaeology. Like, what do I know about archaeology? Very little. Could I go on Wikipedia and look up, up archaeology? Of course I could but not from her perspective. And that's the whole point. So I'm every week I'm having these conversations with people and I, and I just want my mom to know. I want Joanne to know. I want Carmel to know. I have this pride in this work and it, this pride is reluctant, but it's there. And maybe I could do a whole episode of why maybe I should set up a new band and call it reluctant pride because that could be on this t-shirt. That could be my motto. I find it hard to be proud of the things I've done, but I understand other people looking in why they feel I should be proud about it. And there is a sense of pride about it, but it's reluctant as if I don't want to get ahead of myself. Um, So that's where we are now with all these episodes, all these guests, all these things that I've been through, like the nine events, just going back over to my parents' separation, discovering Nirvana, discovering drinking drugs, the Radiohead gig, Stopping singing, like taking away my voice for a few years, my breakdown, quitting alcohol, finding training, setting up a podcast, nine things that like I would challenge you to write down nine things, events that change everything for you. And you'd find them no problem, like not everything made the list. Like I said, the Beatles and and 12 Angry Men would have been on here and something would have been taken off and it would have been a shame to take something off because everything else was so important. I didn't want to do 21 <laughs> events that changed everything. I wanted to keep it under 10. I was going to go with seven because Magnificent Seven, Seven Deadly Sins, blah, blah, blah. But 
I couldn't leave certain things off and I definitely could leave the podcast off because of uh, rightfully Cormac and Joanne pointing it out to me and my mom obviously. Listen, um, I hope that I hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope that you it got you thinking of like what nine things changed everything for me, what nine events changed everything for me. It, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I don't always uh, look forward to these solos, solo ones that much. I enjoyed this one. I enjoyed writing and thinking back about certain things. So thanks to everyone for uh, joining me along the way as usual. I need to thank John for all his hard work. Um, uh, my mom, my dad, my granddad, Jaron Calvin. Subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't done so already. Um, we're also on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, The Weekly Weekly, Spotify, Apple Anchor, Google Podcasts, etc. All those things. Um, Thanks for, for for tuning in. And if you've done so on YouTube, I apologize for all the drinking and the, the blowing the nose and rubbing the nose. I definitely got like hay fever today because my nose is very, very itchy. Um, Yeah, we'll be back with a guest next week. Who Who's it going to be? Who knows? Actually, do I know? I don't know. <laughs> I think I do. I've been talking to a couple of people. So I don't the the dates aren't pinned down yet all right so listen thanks everyone thanks everyone and uh yeah see you next week bye